Now, Mark chapter 10. This is another radically biblical message, and I have to say right up front that this is dripping with gospel, which means it's gripped with redemption. And I need you to know that up front, because some of the things that Jesus teaches are hard for us to swallow. It's a tough pill to swallow, and yet it's truth, and he always blends truth and compassion every time he teaches, and that's the same here, because we're talking about divorce. And I'm not going to ask for a raise of hands, but I suspect that all of us have been touched in some way, either very personal uh, level, at a very personal level within your own family unit, or you know somebody who has suffered through divorce, and it's not a pleasant thing. And so this is going to touch all of us in some way, I'm sure. So as we dive into that, I want to be as truthful and honest in exegeting God's word, and I want to apply it in a way that's redemptive the way God does, and so that's where we're headed today. This is really a study about the sanctity of marriage. And it's really a good teaching for all of us because it helps remind us that God has raised the bar for marriage and there's something very special about it if we understand its origins and why it can benefit all of us. So Jesus is trying to restore our hearts to God's original intent, whereas some of the people who were questioning him on his travel down toward Jerusalem were really just out to try to trap him in an argument that they had. Let's look at that. Where are we? First of all, the first verse shows us that. We have to ask, where are we not only geographically, but in Jesus' ministry? Verse 1 says, Jesus then left that place. Where is that place? Well, it's Capernaum in Galilee, where he had been hanging out and doing a lot of the ministry around that northwestern side of the lake. And he went into the region of Judea, which is just a broad term for any time they would head south, near Jericho, so closer to Jerusalem. He's actually on his way to Jerusalem. And after we get into uh, chapter 11, he doesn't go back up toward Capernaum at all. So he's moving away from Galilee where he's done most of his earthly ministry, a large majority of it, and he's marching toward the cross from this point forward. It's good for us to know that. And this little section of teaching seems to almost jump out as not being in keeping with some of the other things that have been happening. Why is that? Because it's an interruption. These guys that come up and ask him this question are interrupting him and trying to thwart his momentum, basically, which is why he uses it as a teachable moment, but it is an interruption. So in this teaching about marriage, we're going to see how marriage is designed to serve us as a whole lot more than just establishing a set of rigid rules to follow. And a lot of people, especially in the world, especially skeptics, people who push back against Christianity, will say, that's all this Christianity stuff is. It's a bunch of do's and don'ts, and it's oppressive, and we don't want anything to do with that. There's a lot of that going around today. But Jesus is going to show us that the teaching is all about the attitude of our heart behind the sanctity of marriage, as he does in so many other things about the attitude of our heart. And he's going to actually show how the religious leaders who are questioning him were actually trying to use their legalistic rules and how they're interpreting Old Testament scripture to allow them to get away with sin and to mistreat women. And Jesus is having none of that. So we need to walk through these verses and then I'll comment along the way. Let's start at verse 2. Some Pharisees came and tested him by asking, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And Jesus asks, being the good teacher, knows when to put a question mark at the end of his next statement and make it into a question. He says, well, what did Moses command you? He replied, they said, 
Well, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. Now, here's where we need some background to help us understand what's going on in this situation because it's going to make a big difference about how we might see what Jesus is doing and his heart behind it. There is a big debate going on. If you have been watching The Chosen at all, I don't know if you have, Joy and I have been watching the first couple of episodes of season two, and you can start to see this big differences in a couple of very political factions, the Pharisees, a couple of different groups within the Pharisees, but also the Sadducees. And there are some major morality differences in the way they interpret scripture. And so they were always trying to vie with one another, not so that they could see the true heart of God, but so they could gain political power. And that's exactly what's going on here. They wanted to entrap Jesus because they knew that if they could get him to come down on one side or the other, half the population was going to be upset with them. It's kind of like, no, I started to say something about the pandemic, but I'm just going to move right past that. These two factions wanted to entrap Jesus. If, it would be like somebody, if I knew somebody had a brother, like Jeremy, and I said, Jeremy, have you stopped beating your brother yet? And he might go, uh, no, but yeah, yes, but wait. There's no way to answer that, because what if he never beat his brother in the first place? It's the way you're asking the question that makes it a lose-lose question, and that's kind of what they're doing to Jesus. They're trying to box him in with a question that's unanswerable. And so, we need to find out, how does Jesus deal with this? Because he's awfully good at dealing with tough questions like that. The debate that's going on right here stems from a passage back in the Old Testament in Deuteronomy, and as I read these four verses for you, or the first two verses of that, try to get inside the brain of a first century Jew. And you're asking yourself, when would I be allowed, now especially if you're a man, and if you're not a man, you just have to really pretend hard. <laughs> when, when would I be allowed to divorce my wife? Both these scholars think that questions, scholars in the debate back then, think that the question could be answered solely by referring to Deuteronomy chapter 24. Here are these verses. When a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens if she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, that he writes her a certificate of divorce, puts it in her hand, and sends her away from his house, and then they go on to explain some other things. That's the basis for their big decision on when they think it's appropriate or legally okay, or man's right, to divorce his wife. Now, I have to talk to you about the, the two schools of thought that are on either side of this debate. There were two rabbis, both very well known, there's a lot written about them, Shammai and Hillel. Now, Shammai was much more strict in his interpretation. The school of Shammai taught that the word indecency in that, or the word in Hebrew that mean, means indecent, would actually mean something really shameful because it connoted nakedness in Hebrew, which means this had to be really bad before you could really entertain the idea that it was worthy of a divorce, a writ of divorce. It had to be shameful like adultery, or perhaps if she were to walk around with her head shaved and her arms uncovered in the public square, because that would be like she was dressing as a woman of the night, for example. That would be shameful, publicly awful. And if somebody were to do that, then the husband could say, yes, there's some indecency in her, and it's an awfully shameful indecency, and so I'm going to write her a writ of divorce. And it was very simple, because all he had to do was just write something. You could write it on a napkin and go to the public square and send her out of the house. But uh, 
Hillel took a more lenient, broad interpretation of that. And I would say, unfortunately. Because Hillel starts saying, well, I think that anything could be displeasing to that husband because they really focused on different things. This indecency is what Shammai focused on, but Hillel focused on some indecency. <laughs> and so if you focus on just one word without the context for everything else, you can say, well, what is some indecency? Well, she burned my stew. Out with you. And they literally could do that. Or they could say, I don't find favor in you anymore. You used to have favor with me, but I see somebody else who is much more favorably looking to me, and so therefore, I divorce you. That's where this started to lead. And as we look at some of the outside sources, the uh, extra-biblical historians of the day, it's pretty clear that people were wanting to side with Hillel more than Shammai. They wanted to be able to have the right, so they thought, to be able to just send her out at any time. And so Jesus starts to push back against that. They say in verse 4 of Mark 10, um, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. So they're doing exactly what people do today. That is, they found a scripture that they could somehow twist by their, quote, interpretation, even though they throw out good interpretive principles, to uh, make it really handy for them to do what they want to do and feel good about it because they say, well, the Bible says it's okay for us to do that. It's happening all the time. So I really want you to hear this part. It's vital. Look to me in my eyeballs. <laughs> this right to divorce for any reason is what Jesus teaches against. That's what he's pushing back on. These religious leaders were not asking, can a man ever get a divorce? They were asking, can a man divorce his wife for any reason? And they were really hoping he was going to side with Hillel so that they could go off and say, see, I told you. But Jesus' response shows that he respects women. He showed tremendous respect for women. You read the whole Gospels. It becomes so evident that he values women. He first revealed himself as Messiah to the woman at the well. When he was resurrected, who was the first person to see him and recognize him? It was a woman. Who were the first people to share the good news about his resurrected state? Women. So you can't say that Jesus was against women. And this is one of the reasons he was so, I'm sure, seething in his spirit about the kind of question they were asking because he knew the hardness of men's hearts. So what is Jesus rejecting here? He's rejecting a male-dominated abuse of women in the name of doing it for God. It's wrong. It's not that Jesus is opposed to every divorce. We'll see in a couple of minutes why there are actually passages that indicate there are times when it's probably going to be the best thing. And I would say because, especially, he's trying to protect women, he needs them to be able to have a way out. Because in that society, if somebody sent you away and just put you on a shelf, and they would even say put away, which is different than divorce, if somebody put the woman away and did not give her a writ of divorce, she's still legally married to him. She can't marry again. And many times there was no way for them to have a job which means about the only way they could actually make a living to survive would become prostitution. So there are times when Jesus, for the sake of protecting women, would allow for divorce, but it's a rare situation, especially for people of God who would not want to just do this at the drop of a hat. So let's look at verse 5, Mark 10. It was because your hearts were hard, says Jesus, that Moses wrote you this law. And then we see Matthew 19, and again, I'm referring to this uh, 
the chosen because I just saw this recently. Matthew is presented in that, and it, this is completely hypothetically, but they're presenting him as though he's on the spectrum and he's very fastidious about details. Now, may have been, I don't know, that's their interpretation of that. But what we do see in his writing style is that Matthew was very detailed. He wanted to make sure. He was a tax collector. He was used to details. You had to get the numbers right. Everything had to add up. And so it shows him running around meticulously being a scribe and making sure that he got all the wording just right. Mark, as we've said at the beginning of the study, was an action-packed, let's get to the chase kind of a guy. And so that's exactly what happens here. Because in Matthew, there's a little more detail for this same event. And we know it's the same event because we're talking about the same travels, the same interruption, the same debate. And Matthew adds something uh, a little bit different. It says, because of the hardness of men's hearts, but from the beginning it was not this way, Whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality, this is Matthew 19.9, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. So Matthew adds that little clause. It's called the adultery clause that some people refer to that as, which means that if somebody has committed adultery in your family, that's grounds for a divorce because they've stepped out on you and they've broken the vow. But then Jesus takes them all the way back, way past Deuteronomy and Moses' laws, to the very beginning of creation itself. Now let me ask you, this is a trick question. No, it's not really. But who created the world in the first place? Wasn't Jesus the agent of creation? He was right there at the very beginning. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He created this stuff, and so he's taking us all the way back to the time when he actually created this for our benefit and for the blessing of mankind. And they're not sure what he's going to do with that. Look at verse 6 of Mark 10. But at the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two, this is important, the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Okay, here's a little more background, and this is vital. It has to do with the Hebrew words for male and female. This is especially important in our society today. I mean no harm to those people who have misinterpreted this or had it taught to them as a misinterpreted. I'm trying to guide us back gently and compassionately to the truth, and I believe this to be absolute truth from Scripture. I stake my life on it. God's intention for marriage, there's a beautiful description this poetic description, but it's not just poetry. It's a reality that God created. And the words in Hebrew are gorgeous. It's really amazing. Because the word for male is zakar, and the female is nakiba. Now, I'm going to use some euphemisms to be kind about the way I say it here. But those are huge in terms of biological meaning. Because the word for zakar actually means the shape like a puzzle piece that would actually fit inside the other shape of the female piece of the puzzle so that when those two puzzle pieces to come, come together, they form one picture that is an expression that reflects the glory of God in creation. It's a beautiful expression. And when people live within the expression God gave for us, it's a beautiful thing. And they come together for another one of the purposes of marriage, which is to actually propagate more human beings which is sort of necessary because you need both sides of that puzzle, both puzzle pieces for that to happen. 
So together, God shows us that a man and a woman, and it's implied clearly from the beginning, especially because there was just Adam and Eve, that there was one man involved in this and one woman. But notice verse 8 when Jesus said that two will become one flesh. Why is Jesus so insistent on that? We'll get into that because it's interesting. If you're interested in this too, say, I'm interested. (laughs) Because I got really jazzed when I discovered some things that I had not seen in all of my 65 years of living, some of the stuff until I stumbled upon it this week in my study. This is a response to a debate going on among scholars in the first century. And the debate has to do with polygamy meaning having more, one, more than one wife at the same time on earth. So Jesus specifically uses the word two to describe what happens in marriage. One man plus one woman equals one flesh. That's exactly the way God formed everything. So in Genesis 2.24, it's worded this way. A man leaves his father and mother. Now he's talking about one man. It's obvious. One man leaves his father and mother and is united to his one wife. That's also implied because of the way those words are given. But then it says, and they become one flesh. Do you know what some liberal scholars have done with this? They focused on the word they instead of one man, one woman. And they want to, even back in the first century, to say it's okay to have several wives. It says they. They're really ignoring some basic logic and syntax and looking at what the Bible actually says about that. They, they literally have to twist this thing on its head in order to justify what they're doing. And that's what was being talked about in this section of Mark 10, by the way. It was a debate about polygamy versus monogamy. But then Jesus goes this step further and he quotes two, which a lot of people were doing. And we'll see that there's some evidence for that too. Here's a great resource. Now, if you want to do a really deep dive, I went down a rabbit hole big time the last couple of days because I found a guy named Dr. David Instone Brewer. He's Reverend Doctor. Uh, he's from Cambridge, brilliant guy. He's got a great accent. It's fun to listen to. And he wrote a very lengthy uh, dissertation about marriage and divorce in the Bible and remarriage. And it's important for us to know that there were people back then in Jesus' time in the first century who were trying to justify polygamy And they were trying to use scripture to make that happen. Now, we get this. Let me read a couple of things that are quotes or close to quotes from Dr. Instone Brewer. Uh, He he does this, by the way, in a very redemptive, gospel-centered way. And so he's not trying to throw some new boomerang at us and catch us off guard. It's very in, in keeping with everything else that you would think of as a good, strong, orthodox, evangelical position. It says that those who do divorce are still ready for this. They're still forgiven if they will repent from their sin. I wanted to put that one right up front before we even get into some of the specifics because he wants people to know, yes, God hates divorce. It says so in the Bible. He used the nation of Israel as an example of that because they kept acting in a way that was adulterous. He said, you adulterous generation. So he hates divorce, and it is a sin for people to get divorced. But nobody is beyond the forgiveness of God, no matter what that sin might be. So I say that right up front. Genesis 2.24 was a standard proof text for those upholding monogamy and discounting polygamy. When they quoted this passage in Genesis, they would use the word to instead of they, because the syntax meant 
one person plus one person. Those who were trying to prove that polygamy was okay would leave out the word to, and they would go back, and they would camp out on the word they. This, by the way, unfortunately, is a very common practice, as we see today, that people are still doing to Scripture in order to try to justify things that are way outside of God's boundaries and outside of His original created order. In the Dead Sea Scrolls, and this one really caught my attention because Joy and I were standing right there looking at the cave where these scrolls were found when we were in Israel. There is a document, a scroll called the Damascus document. Now, it's an extra-biblical document, but it adds validity and historic context for what validates Scripture. In chapters 4 and 6 of this ancient document, we find these phrases. They, meaning those people who engage in polygamy, are caught by two snares by sexual sin, namely by taking two wives into their lives, which would be the same as adultery, while the foundation of creation, does that sound familiar? It's exactly what Jesus is saying. He says at the beginning of creation, and this document says that the foundation of creation is male and female, he created them. And he uses quotes as though he's quoting from Genesis. And those who went into Noah's ark went in two by two. Interesting. And he says that somebody who engages in polygamy that marries more than one wife is actually caught in two snares. Now, the second illustration is unique, and it's kind of interesting to me. It's intriguing to me that he would use Noah's ark as an example. Why would that be? He said, because when God sent the animals into the ark, he didn't send them three by five, or six and one, or three and one. He sent them in two by two. And why would that be? Well, it's necessary to have a male animal and a female animal so that they can have more animals in the future after the flood. It seems pretty basic. Anybody who grew up on a farm would know this is the way things work. It's logic, and it seems to be very natural. So these authors back then were clearly steeped in this argument for years before Jesus even came on the scene. And we typically tend to think that he's really speaking more about just divorce and remarriage, but there's more to it than that in this passage in Mark 10. He's really speaking to this issue about polygamy versus monogamy. And up until fairly recently, in fact, many scholars believe that this whole section in Mark 10, uh, verses 1 through 12, were arguing about remarriage instead of polygamy versus monogamy. So in David Instone Brewer's book, Divorce and Remarriage in the Bible, if you want to get a copy, you really could take a deep, deep dive. He provides a lengthy argument about what, why this is not arguing about remarriage. Now, there's more about remarriage that Jesus gives after they get back to the house and the disciples have a question about it. But this particular area is about that debate on polygamy. So the bottom line from his work on the passage is that it's obvious from the original intent of Genesis 1.27 and 2.24, God created a male and a female and that one of each was to be joined in marriage. Let me just repeat that to be crystal clear. God's intention from the very beginning is that there would be one male, one female to get joined together in a sacred union, and that equals one flesh. That's marriage. Now, one of the things that people do today is that they'll try to say that these ancient rules were needed back then for that era, but that in the New Testament, things were done away with like that. Oh, these things don't apply to us. Well, remember who was there as the agent of creation and where is he now in the New Testament? He is answering the questions from Pharisees, and what does he refer them to? All the way back to creation again. 
Jesus is saying, what God has joined together, let no man separate. And he's not only talking, this is a wonderful double entendre kind of phrase. He's not talking about the marriage shouldn't be separated because of divorce. That's actually the Catholic position. They don't believe that there's any such thing as divorce, period. Whereas Jesus actually says there are times when divorce is acceptable. But he's saying what God has joined together, these two puzzle pieces, let no man separate. He's upholding exactly what happened way back at the time of creation. So no, these things haven't been tossed out. We, Jesus didn't suddenly, suddenly come on the scene and say, yeah, I'm, I'm not feeling it anymore. He's upholding what he established at the very beginning because he is God. And we tend to forget that. And then we also need to know Jesus loves women. He upholds women. He champions women. He protects women. By the time Jesus walked the earth, people in Israel were treating women like property. And he didn't like that. I don't like that. I've seen some alleged Christian men use Scripture to try to justify the fact that they're oppressing their wives. And I say, you need to repent, buddy, and get over it because that's not right. That's not what true marriage is all about. In fact, it's supposed to reflect the goodness of God in which we see different persons, not less than each other, they're co-equal, and yet they serve different roles. That's why marriage is a reflection of God, the triune God. So we guys cannot say, I'm going to tell my wife what she's supposed to do because God gives me the right to do that in Scripture. No, he doesn't. You're supposed to give your life down as Christ died for the church for your wife. And you're supposed to continually build her up. So if anybody is giving the bad example of that, they're not being scriptural. And if somebody's looking in from the outside, I would say, I'm sorry if you got that impression, but that's not what Christ teaches. Now, we get what the disciples ask in verse 10. When they were in the house again, the disciples asked Jesus about this. He answered, anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another man, she commits adultery. Now, remember that Matthew clause about that there was a chance in some, if there had been infidelity in the marriage, that would be that adultery clause. But he's saying something that's a tough pill to swallow. And I can imagine that some of these disciples were probably scratching their heads a little bit. They're thinking, okay, so he's not really siding with Shammai. He's not really siding with Hillel. He's taking us all the way back to the beginning of creation to say that I'm trying to get you back to God's heart on this issue. I want you to cherish each other so much that you're willing to hang in there through the tough times and work things out and learn how to get stronger in your trials together and forgive each other and quit being so doggone selfish with one another. Because most of the divorces that happen today are because of selfishness. Not necessarily because of other things that were happening. And it's very rarely, very rarely, there's a totally innocent party and a totally guilty party. Now I know it's easy for us to want to cast dispersions on the other person, to paint them with a broad brushstroke, to demonize that other person. So I'm completely in the right, they're completely in the wrong. It happens. But that's not usually the case. So here's what Jesus is upholding. And then I want to get to this good part. Marriage is a sacred union, and we need to treat it as such. It's not merely some contract that you can say, uh, I'm going to rewrite the vows and say, until I get tired of you, then I'm going to divorce. No, the, the contract is supposed to be the kind of covenant contract 
that honors God till death do we part. And I'm going to stay in there with all I've got and try to make it work no matter what because I know God can give me the strength to do that. Now, I would never, ever counsel a woman to stay in an abusive situation. Jesus didn't. He protected women. He forgave that woman who was caught in adultery. And then he kindly pointed out, I'm sure, that there were more than one person involved in that situation. And they were worthy of some just rewards as well. Can't imagine what he would have done when he was writing in the dust, but we can speculate about that. So here's the thing. Yes, I would counsel a woman who's in a situation where they feel like that they are in jeopardy to get out. Find an escape plan. Get people who will take you to a safe place and get completely away if you feel that your life is in danger. And I, I feel awful that there have been pastors who have counseled otherwise to women. Jesus would not do that, I don't believe. Not in my heart. So what about divorced people? This is, like I say, it affects so many of us. What does it mean for our society, probably over half of the society who has divorce as a part of our families? Even to those who are in Christian circles, what does that mean for us? Well, I bring us right back to that thing that uh, Dr. Instone Brewer said. Every sin is forgivable because of what Christ did for us on the cross. He makes us as though the sin never, ever happened. And so there's a second chance. We can start with a clean slate. I know a lot of people who have been through the pain of divorce. And I've also seen how God was so redemptive in that. I'm Facebook friends with a guy that Joy and I actually sang at his second wedding. Because there was infidelity. His wife had stepped out on him. There's an awful voice, uh, a divorce. It was tragic. Similar kind of thing happened with the person that he met a couple of years later. And then they dated for a long time before they got remarried. They took a lot of counseling and they were trying to figure out, did we cause this? What part did I play? Can I get forgiven for that? And then they joined together again. That was 35 years ago or so. And Joy and I sang at their wedding. And it was a testimony. The whole wedding was a testimony of God's goodness and redemption. And he's a God of second chances. And they've been so active in lay ministry in the churches where they've served for years. And so God always has a place for people who will repent and say, I need your forgiveness. Give me a clean slate. Let's get going again. Let me give you a couple of good examples from my own personal history. We have a friend who worked diligently to try to repair a broken relationship. This was in another state where we lived before we came back to Michigan. The wife had just kind of had a breakdown. She left. She moved in with another guy. But he said, scripturally, I can't just walk away from her. I have to do everything I can to try to win her back, to let her know I'm still waiting for you, and I'll wait as long as it takes. If it's 10 years, I'll wait. And he committed himself to that. He said, I know it's tough, but... I want to give her every opportunity to come back to me if that's what will happen. And in his case, sad to say, it didn't happen. But he said, but I'll never file for divorce. I'm going to hang in and do the best I can. And he never did, but she finally did. And so that freed him up. Don't think he ever remarried. It's a tough situation, but boy, he hung in there and gave it the very best shot that he could. Live at peace as far as is humanly possible. That's what he was trying to do. And he understood. He was searching his own heart and saying, I can understand why she would think that I was being controlling or oppressive. I think I was. And I need to not do that. And I feel bad about that. And I've confessed that to the Lord, and he's forgiven me for that. 
There's some other things that I realized. Yes, I was a part of the dynamic that was our marriage. But he hung in there, and then he continued to honor God with his life from that day forward, even after the divorce. Too many people, I think, try to fill a void that they feel is not being filled through their spouse. And they have somebody else that's a good listener, and they, they're just fawning all over them. They're feeding their ego. And then they start coming up with excuses as to why they need to leave that spouse because they're going to the other person. And then when they're giving the reasons why they did that, they never give the reasons, well, I saw a person who was better looking. They don't say that. But everybody who's been watching it happen are going, oh, yeah, come on. You're not telling yourself the truth. We know better. People do that all the time these days. And so what Jesus is teaching is, we're doing everybody a disservice, especially women, when we're doing that sort of thing, to treat them as though they're some sort of chattel, some sort of something we can put on a shelf, and when we're tired of it, we can just send it off and let somebody else deal with it. He says he's tired of that. He wants us to uphold God's standard of marriage and really take it seriously. Another couple we worked with years ago, a guy had a one-time dalliance on a business trip, nearly tore their family apart. They were very discreet about it, a lot of counseling. Gratefully, I was able to stand in a very tearful recommitment of vow ceremony one night late, just that couple and Joy and me. We were witnesses to the fact that they were recommitting their lives together, and they're still together to this day, and that was about 34 years ago. They never did get divorced. There was forgiveness. There was healing. There was growth. They were sprinkled with fire, like we talked about a couple of weeks ago, and those trials continued to make them stronger and seasoned with salt so that they could be salty Christians. I know another person, this was actually a relative, uh, an extended family relative, and her husband had stepped out on her. They did get a divorce early on in their marriage, but she took this seriously and said, I would feel like I was committing adultery if I ever married again. And so she remained single and celibate the rest of her life. She said, I'm going to be like Paul. I'm just going to dedicate my way to serving God, dedicate my life to serving him in as many ways as possible. And she remained celibate that whole time. That's not for everybody. It's difficult, but she did it. Different people can interpret scriptures different ways, but there's something that Jesus wanted to make clear. We ought to take marriage seriously. So, what do we do as a church? How do we welcome people who may have had this pain in their past? Same way God does. We'll accept you just the way you are. Right where you are. God loves us too much not to forgive us when we come to him for forgiveness. But he loves us too much to leave us where we are. So he accepts us where we are, and then he's going to continue that transformation process just like he said to that woman who was caught in adultery when he said, now go and sin no more. So he says, yes, I'll clean your slate. I'll forgive all those sins. Now let's start walking together down this correct path so that from this day forward, you're going to be putting me first in your life. And then with this new marriage, it's going to honor me. Let's do that. Many of you all have seen the blessings of people in a second or third marriage honoring God because God had taken them at that point and he's continuing to bless others because of a godly union. Aren't we grateful for a God who forgives? Because honestly, we all have something in our past that we're ashamed of. And unfortunately, there have been a lot of times in churches where people would say, oh, those Christians, they just shoot their wounded. 
Because if there was ever a divorce within the congregation, it just tore things up. And we want to be the kind of loving agency of grace to uphold the standard that God set in the first place and to work as diligently as we can to help people get through the tough spots because when we do that, you come out so much stronger on the other side of that. But if somebody comes and they have divorce in their past, we're not going to castigate them. We're going to accept them where they are and let God work with them from that day forward. Tough subject, but a redemptive one. And I'm really glad that God is a redeeming God. And let's pray. God, I... I'm so grateful that you are a redemptive God, that you always have this forgiveness available to every single person who gets to the point when in their life they see something that you convict them of because of your Holy Spirit. And the instant they get that conviction, they're able to say, I get it now. I need to repent from that sin. God, forgive me for that. And you're so quick to do that. You forgive everything that we bring to you, everything. So this is a tough teaching. But I'm so grateful that it's a gospel teaching because it points us to the one who makes forgiveness possible. And that's why we needed Jesus Christ. And that's why he died on the cross to take our place. So that even these sins can be forgiven. And I pray that you'll help us to uphold the kind of uh, sacredness of marriage the way that God intended in the very first place. And that we will all work from this day forward at being representatives of you, reflections of your glory through our marriages. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.